you brought a Bible with you, open up to the New Testament letter to Colossians. Colossians. We'll read through that here together this morning. Pastor Jeremy, thank you so much for the invitation to come out to Dalhart. This has been a great trip. It's been a brief trip, and it's going to be even shorter because we got to get on a plane as, as soon as church is over, and, and I uh, wish we could stay longer. I'm so thankful that my son Matthew was able to come and uh, meet new friends. He meets new friends wherever he goes. He, he doesn't know strangers, and uh, but it's been a real big blessing to be with you all the last couple days, and I uh, look forward to seeing what God will do through this church as you all strive to glorify God by making disciples. You know, all around this church, I see evidence of a commitment to discipleship and missions, right? Hanging on the back wall is a map of the world. Going down the hallway, there's a list of missionaries. And uh, as we think about the letter to the Colossians, the folks in Asia who uh, were recipients of this letter, we're reminded that a missionary wrote this letter, right? Uh, Paul, we like to you know use the title apostle, the one who was sent by God, Paul. But Paul was a missionary. Uh, he was set apart by a church. Uh, that church funded him. They sent him, and he went all over the ancient world on different missionary trips, preaching the gospel, got him in a lot of trouble, found himself in jail. In fact, he was in jail for preaching the gospel when he wrote this particular letter to a church. And, you know, he didn't start this church. It's what's pretty amazing is Paul is writing to a church that another minister had started a man named Epaphras. And as you read through this letter, you find that Epaphras is there with him in jail. Uh, he's been sick, and so Paul's writing this church to say, hey, I want to commend you, your pastor. He's been a blessing to me in my imprisonment. Uh, what a great man of God he is. He prays for you even while he's not with you. And, you know, I want you to know as we read through this letter that this is a very real and gritty letter. Hey, we, we come to the Bible and we often think, well, it's in the, the Bible uh, is, is sort of this pristine, carved in ivory type thing. We don't want to uh, view sort of the, the humanness of the situations, but it, it, it doesn't get more real than being in prison for your faith and writing to a church filled with people that you don't really know personally to encourage them for the gospel. And as we've been considering this weekend in our conference and wrapping up this morning the reflection on what it means to be holy, that is, what it means to, in our actual lives, begin to take on the character quality of our adopting, loving Father in the power that Jesus gives us by uniting us to himself, by giving us his spirit, by, by clearing the, the weeds out of the way for us to walk in a new path of holiness, Colossians has a lot to tell us about that. Now, if I were in uh, my church at home, I wouldn't even be up here normally. Normally, I just get to stand up and play guitar in church and uh, leave the preaching to our, our senior pastor. So this is a delight for me to get to do this this morning. And I've been told I have a time limit. What time do I have to stop? 11.45. All right. I thought you said two hours, but just kidding. Before we begin reading through this passage together, and I'm not just going to read it, I'm going to read it in, in spurts and we'll talk about it together as we go through it, I do want to invite God's presence once again through prayer. And so if you would, just take a moment and 
prepare your heart to hear the word, and then I'll vocalize a prayer for us. Join me. Father, our desire this morning is to please you. We come here with a lot of burdens on our hearts, a lot of concerns, a lot of worries, a lot of bills, a lot of needs. And we come in the comfort that we have the confidence that we are to cast our cares upon you because you care for us. So, Heavenly Father, in this time that we have together this morning, we do cast our cares upon you and ask that for this little bit of time that we have to be in your word this morning, that you would meet us. And that as you meet us, Lord, you would strengthen our hearts, deepen our faith, stretch our minds. And Lord, help us to walk in a way that honors you. Let our conversation, let our thoughts, let our manner of life, come to honor our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask in the power of your Spirit and in the name of our Savior. Amen. Colossians chapter 3. So if you were in Sunday school, we talked about uh, reading through the Bible and the book of Colossians, this letter that Paul wrote, the missionary wrote to this church he didn't know. You can read through this letter in about 20 minutes. It doesn't take very long. I hope maybe sometime today, after you've had lunch, after you've settled the kids down for a nap or you've nestled down on your couch or near a fire or whatever the circumstance may be, uh, that you would maybe open up your Bible and take time just to read this thing from start to finish and be encouraged by what the Lord is doing. We're in Colossians chapter 3, which means we're halfway through this four-chapter epistle. And so we're starting in the middle, and so starting in the middle can be a little confusing if you don't know what's come before. So let me just tell you that Paul's writing this letter to encourage these Christians. And he's writing to encourage them because they're living in very discouraging times and situations. They're living in a part of the world in the Roman Empire where it appears that the church won't survive. The church is very young. The church is within 20 years of Christ's resurrection and ascension is when this church had started. And it, it looks like all the power of the government, all the power of the world is going to suffocate the church. But of course, we know what the Colossians didn't have access to because we have the sure word of Christ that the gates of hell will never prevail against Christ's church. And so Paul's writing to encourage them. Some of them are struggling because they've come out of a lifestyle of, of slavery and sexual sins. Many of them uh, ha had lived very hard lives. These aren't um, delicate people. They're very real people. Some of them had come out of these cults, what we call mystery religions. And there's a number of these religions all over the Roman Empire Rome would let folks kind of keep their pagan practices so long as they would make the right sacrifices and say the right things at the right time. You could kind of do your own religious thing until it came time to make public homage. And so a number of the folks in this church had come out of these cults. They had no background in who Jesus 
as the Messiah was. They didn't know the promises of God that had been given to Israel. Some did. There were some folks who appeared to be Jewish believers. Many of them are secular. They're lost. And so Paul's writing to a church that's in a mess, not of their own making, but because they've been called together, called out of the world, and what they have in common is they're sinners who've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, and not unlike our gathering here, our gathering in Kentucky, when you get a congregation full of people who are sinners who've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, friction happens, conflict arises, difficulties come, and life doesn't get any easier. And Paul is writing to them in the midst of this letter to tell them, hey, I know you've come from some really hard places, and I know your backgrounds are really diverse, and none of them have been easy. But in the gospel, there's power to live a new life in Christ. And that's the message I would give to you this morning from the Word of God, is that in the gospel, God has given us the power to live a life that honors Christ, that reflects Christ, that makes a testimony to the world, that looks different than the life that our parents may have shown for us or the life that we've seen or come from. There's hope in the gospel. And I would leave you with this big idea here this morning that we'll try to show you from the passage of Scripture. And that is setting our mind on things that are above changes the way we live here below. Setting our mind on things that are above changes the way we hear below. Paul writes in this letter in chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, and we're going to look all the way down to verse 17, although we won't read it sequentially right this moment. If then y'all have been raised with Christ, that's the, we mentioned this yesterday, that's the New Kentucky version, because the you here is second person plural. We don't In English, we just say you, and it could be y'all, you guys, uh, whatever that works out to be. I think y'all works here in Texas. Yeah, okay. Right. If then y'all have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above, where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your all's life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your all's life, appears, then you all also will appear with Him in glory. At the end, I'll come back to these verses and show how living out, how setting and seeking changes the way we live. But I want to focus in right now on verses 5 through 11 with you and reflect on, on, on this one theme. Doing what comes naturally leads to death. Doing what comes to us naturally doesn't honor God, and it often leads to our own destruction. So Paul writes to this church, and he says, put to death, verse 5, therefore, whatever is earthly in you. He's going to give a list that's characteristic of these mind that is set on earth kind of things, sexual immorality, impurity, lustful passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is a form of idolatry. 
on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all, and he's in all. Doing what comes naturally is deadly. Now, New Testament scholars will look at a passage like Colossians 3, 5 to 11, and they give it a name. They call it a vice list. And as you read through the other New Testament letters, you see other lists of vices. And the way these would work is a teacher in the ancient world would call out behavior that used to characterize people, and he'd say, hey, look, you know the kind of stuff you used to do, and they'd rattle off a number of things. And as you read through the New Testament, there are three, four, five places where we have lists of vices. And sometimes they overlap. Sometimes one list has a sin that the others don't list. And, and so it's not that these are a comprehensive list of do's and don'ts. In fact, this is all don'ts. Uh, and it's not that he hits on everything, but rather he's saying, here's some things that represented the kind of life you used to live when you walked in it, when you were in these cults, when you were sexual slaves sold in a marketplace, when you were at your weakest, when you were at your worst. And teachers would write these kind of letters not to try to... Uh, try to give you these lists of things, but they would say, look, you remember what life was like, and they give these lists of vices as a way for you to, to remember and to repent. And so we have this list of things, and what strikes me about this list is all of these things involve other people. Look back at this list of sins. Right? We often think sin is sort of my own personal problem. I've got some hang-ups that I'm working on, and you know, don't really give me too much grief because it's my sin, and, and you know, I get to live my life, and it doesn't really affect you. But look how sin does affect other people. Just read through this list. Okay, Sexual immorality takes two. Impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness. What about this? Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Lying. Do you notice how all those involve at least one other person? You don't, we might deceive ourselves, but when we lie, we speak words to deceive others. We express anger towards other people. We slander other people to other people. That means talking negatively about somebody in the presence of someone else. All these things are ethically wrong. That is, they involve other people. And it's really interesting to me that Paul names these kinds of things because he's about to tell them to take on the character of Christ in such a way that reverses these sins. But he says, you know, you all all lived in this pattern, and it involves sinning, and it involves sinning with and against other people. Y'all, when we walk in sin, it's never just about us. 
it always affects somebody, whether you see the effect or not. The other thing that strikes me about this list is all these things, nobody has to learn them. Nobody has to teach you to lie. Nobody has to teach you to be angry. No one has to teach you sexual immorality. All these things come naturally. And they come naturally because our hearts are desperately messed up. God created us in His image. Quickly, after having the freedom to walk in the, in the holiness and beauty of God, our first parents, Adam and Eve, fall into sin. That image of God is shattered, it's fractured, and every one of us inherits a heart that doesn't need to be taught how to do these things. It's impossible for us to imagine a world where these kind of sins don't exist, isn't it? Praise God that many of you grew up with a family that modeled purity and you walked in holiness and purity in different ways in your life, but none of us have been flawless. This list catches us at some point. It's like flypaper we can't escape. We can't read this list of sins and say, well, yeah, that's some, some really bad people do those kind of things, but, but that's not me. That's one of the reasons these lists work the way they do is because in big things and in small things, sin catches us in every way. And these things are what come naturally. But y'all doing what comes naturally is deadly. And Paul's talking to a group of people. He's writing to them and he's saying three things about these sins. Did you catch them? Maybe, maybe if you want to go back in your Bible and read them. And if your translation's a little different, you'll be able to figure out what they are in your Bible. And this might be something worth circling or underlining in your Bible because these are three responses to sin that the Christian needs to take. First, in verse 5, put to death, therefore. Now, King James may render it mortify. That's a nice old English word from the uh, 17th century that means put to death. Mortify is, is uh, well, we did that to an antelope on Friday night. We mortified it, right? We, uh, we, we took aim and he was no more. That's the kind of language that Paul is using. That's pretty intense, isn't it? We don't often think about, we think about managing our sin. We think about mitigating its damage. We think about maybe containing our sin. But do we think about putting it to death? Do you think about looking at aspects of your sin and saying, I've got to kill that in the power of Christ? And if we didn't catch that on the first pass, notice how Paul brings it up again in this paragraph. Verse 8, you must put all these ways of living away. Or again, as we go through, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Verse 9. Paul's making a point here that those who would name the name of Christ have to have a life that is supernatural. Because to do what comes naturally is deadly. And as we'll see 
through this passage in the power of the gospel, God has given us all the resources we need to walk in a new life that honors and imitates the Lord Jesus Christ. And in fact, when we look at verses 12 through 17, that's the kind of life we see. So let's look here at this list of virtues, which is set aside against this list of vices. Verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so must you also forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you all richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God in whatever you do, in word or in action. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Doing what comes naturally is deadly. But doing what comes through the gospel is foreign. Notice all the things in verses 12 through 17 don't come naturally, do they? Now, we talked yesterday in our conference, I'm really thankful that God makes people, often moms, to be patient and loving kind of people. I'm really thankful. Uh, I might not be here today if it weren't for a patient and loving mom. And uh, it's, really, it's really good that God gives people good dispositions. But read through this list and see how foreign these things are to the way that you want to live in the world. Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Let's just start with those five things. Y'all, patience is hard. Right? We want it, like the, like the song says, we want it all and we want it now. Whatever it is that we want, we don't want to wait for it. Who wants to wait for anything? We want it now. Meekness? What's meekness? Meekness is power that's controlled and restrained. The world doesn't teach us to be meek. The world says exercise your power, get what you want, do what you can do, take advantage, make the money, leave a trail of people broken behind you. Doesn't matter. Humility. Um, I'll just give you one word, Facebook. Okay, Does Facebook prize humility? No. We've developed all kinds of things on social media, right? The, the phenomenon of the humble brag. Like, you know, so thankful that I'm preaching to 5,000 people this morning. Blessed. Right? What did I, like, we, we, we don't prize humility. We don't prize lowliness. We prize 
beaming and spotless. Forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other. Does that come naturally? Is that how we naturally are? Forbearing. Forbearing means somebody irritates you and you continue doing life with them together. Looking past that irritation and seeing the value of the person. Is that easy? You know, when we we talk about these lists of virtues, the blessing of the gospel is in Christ, these virtues become ours. And we can walk in these virtues, these ways of doing, because all of these things are true of Christ. Read through this list with me again quickly, and I want you in your mind's eye to think about Jesus. Whether it's through movies or even better through the gospel accounts of Jesus, think about his life in light of these things that are in this passage. Compassion. On the Sabbath day, Jesus entered into a synagogue and he began to teach and they were all astonished at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and there was a man who was possessed by a demon and he cried out what have you to do with us Jesus of Nazareth I know who you are you're the holy one of God have you come to destroy us and Jesus said be silent and come out of him and the demon came out of him and Jesus sits on the mount of olives and he looks over the city of Jerusalem and he weeps as he as a uh Father would weep over the uh, the waywardness of the children, and he, he laments. Jesus comes to men who are blind, and he stops. He talks to them. He he gets this mud. He rubs it in their eye. He prays over them, and they're healed. There's a woman who, for years, has been afflicted with a disease of blood. She can't go to the temple because she is religiously unclean. She can't go around other people because they don't want her uncleanness to rub off on them as if they were somehow clean themselves and being in her presence would taint them. And what does he do? As she touches his garment, he turns around and says, Who touched me? Even as he's on the midst to go heal a synagogue ruler's daughter who has died, he has compassion on one. Jesus' life is marked with compassion. Yesterday in our conference, we said, as we begin to take on the character of Christ, that is, we, we will begin to love people that are unclean and unpopular in the way Jesus did. Compassion marked our Lord. Humility. We consider uh, Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 2. Have this mind in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, although he was in the form of God, didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the very form of a servant, And being found in human appearance, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess Jesus Christ is Lord. Have this mind in you which is yours in Christ Jesus. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Y'all, as we go through this list of virtues in Colossians 3, 12 to 17, I want you to understand 
this is what Jesus looked like. And in the gospel, we're united to this Jesus. And we're made heirs of the kingdom. We're adopted into God's family. We're brought near to God where we were formerly far off. And these virtues are ours. And we must walk in these to live out the gospel that we believe. We could go through each one of these and spend a sermon on each virtue. I won't do that this morning because I want to get in focus back on the first list. But did you notice this little phrase? I would be remiss if I didn't point it out in verse 12. Paul's addressing these people and he says, you know, I know how you used to live. You know how you used to live. You've got to put to death. You've got to put it off. You've got to set these things aside. And now look at the identity of believers in Colossae and in Dalhart and in Uzbekistan and in Brazil and every place where the gospel is named. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Do you understand that if you're in Christ, God calls you holy and beloved? You might not feel that way this morning, but I want to tell you from the Word of God that if you have put on Christ, if you have been raised with Christ, joined with Christ, if you name the name of Christ, if by faith you're walking with Christ, God calls you holy and beloved. This is true no matter what our past is. This was written to a church that had a lot of problems. But God in the gospel calls them holy and beloved, even as he does us. So the big question that I want to try to answer here in the time we've got remaining is, how can we learn to live a life that reflects Jesus, that looks like verses 12 to 17? How can these virtues that are true of Christ become true of us in our actual life? You know, it takes no skill to miss a golf ball. It takes no skill to miss a fastball by a major league pitcher. It takes absolutely no skill not to catch a pass thrown by a quarterback in high school or in the NFL or in Texas A&M. Hey, my Wildcats beat LSU last night, y'all. I don't know what to do. Jesus may be coming back this fall, and I praise the Lord because things are happening that have never happened before. We're, we're undefeated, and so I, I, can't, I can usually never say that at this time of year. But it takes no skill to do anything in verses 5 through 11. To live the kind of life that Paul's talking about in verses 5 through 11, to do what comes naturally, it takes no special ability. You don't have to be trained in it. You just wake up and go through life and by default, you'll kind of start doing the things that are in verses 5 through 11 because they're baked into our hearts that have been wrecked by sin. But verses 12 to 17 are a little bit different. You know, if you want to hit 
a fastball thrown by a major league pitcher somewhere in the 90 to 100 mile an hour range, very few of us could just walk on to home plate, grab a Louisville slugger, and say, bring it, I'm ready. Most of us, probably all of us, would miss that pitch time after time after time after time. What does it take to be able to hit a pitch in the major league? It takes practice. It takes standing and trying and failing and standing and trying and failing and standing and trying and failing and paying attention to the mechanics of how your, your stance, how you're holding your bat, how your feet are, your timing. It doesn't come naturally. But you can learn it. Verses 12 to 17, very much like learning to hit a golf ball or learning to hit a baseball or learning to do any particular skill. God teaches us how to walk in these things even when we mess them up and get them wrong. That's grace. But how do we start to take on these things? I think the answer is in the first four verses that we read at the beginning. So let's come back to them and think about them here. Paul is going to make an intentionally theological statement. So when we read a lot of letters in the New Testament, we see a really rich reflection on who God is and what it means to live in light of God. And that's what theology is, studying God, thinking deeply about the things of God. But you know, Paul doesn't give theology for the purpose of merely extending our knowledge or, or, or scratching an intellectual curiosity. He doesn't talk about theology as a topic to be debated. He doesn't talk about it as an academic area of inquiry. It's very practical. He talks about theology for the purpose of changing the life of his readers, even as his own life has been changed. And he's going to make a very theological set of statements here that have practical in outcomes and a way to learn how to walk in this life is found here. First, if, whenever you see the word if, there's a statement that's going to come and it's going to set up an argument. Okay, When you read your Bible, look for the word if. You're going to see if this, then then, and there's going to be an argument about this. If you all have been raised with Christ. Now, let's just stew on this for a second here. He's writing to people that were actually alive, people that could receive this letter, that this letter could be read in their church and in their setting. What does he mean if you've been raised with Christ? That would presume that they've, what? Died. Well, if you look back, just a paragraph in your Bible, it's, it's, it's chapter 2, verse 20. Paul says something very theological about these Christians, and he says it about us. And this is part of the good news of the gospel. Look at chapter 2, verse 20. If with Christ you all died to the elemental spirits of this world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? Now, this is one of those theological truths that we have to kind of get our head around. Paul's writing to people that were very much alive. They were breathing, they were processing oxygen, they had hopes, dreams, concerns, but he says something that is true of them in their spirit. 
they have been crucified with Christ and they've been raised to new life. Do you know that if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, you too have undergone what Paul's describing? You have died with Christ and you've been raised with Christ. Now, there is a time coming when your earthly body will be put in the ground and one day that earthly body will be raised to be with the Lord in His very presence. We go through eternity as people with bodies. Okay, uh, It's a resurrection body. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 15. We learn about it elsewhere. But what is true of believers is we have been raised with Christ. We're so united to Jesus through the gospel that what's true of Jesus becomes true of us. Jesus died and was raised. We have died and were raised. And this is where the power to obey, verses 12 to 17, comes in. Because as long as you're naturally living, and as long as your heart hasn't been changed, and as long as you're in your trespasses and sins, you can't do these things. But now something has been changed. You've died with Christ. You've been raised with Christ. It may not seem that because you're just going through life the same way that you were yesterday. But there's a time when... You were born again, and the Spirit of God poured a new heart into you, and He is working in you new gifts, new habits, new dispositions, new loves, new affections. And so verses 12 to 17 can become true of you because they were true of Christ, and you're united to Christ, you've been raised with Him, and you can walk in this way in a way that you could not on your own power because you don't live by your own power. You live by the power of Christ. I live by the power of Christ. If this is true, you've been raised with Christ, he's going to tell us two things. You might circle these or underline these in your Bible. Seek the things that are above, where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. At our conference yesterday, we, we mentioned briefly this passage it teaches us something very important about Jesus. Jesus is in control right now. Now, there's coming a day when Jesus will be visibly ruling on earth, and the whole earth will bow their knee to him, either in worship or in awe. They will know how wrong, and they will delight in how right, and we will see Jesus. But even right now, Jesus is at the right hand of the throne of God, a position of authority, a position of power. And as we seek the rule of Jesus in our life, as we submit our life to King Jesus, verses 12 to 17 start to become true of us. But you have to seek Jesus' authority and control. Now, He is an authority and control whether or not you seek Him. But if you want to live a kind of life that reflects and imitates Him and shows His goodness to the world and that shows the genuineness of the gospel working sin out of our heart, y'all, we've got to seek Him. Then, the second command you might want to circle here, verse 2, set your minds on things that are above where Christ is not 
on things of this earth. There's two mindsets coming here in this chapter. Paul's describing here in verses 5 to 11 a mind that is set on earth. A mind that does what comes naturally and to do what comes naturally is deadly. And he's contrasting that with a mind that is set on heaven and the present rule and authority of Jesus Christ. So, how can we do the actions that Paul says? How can we seek? How can we set? You know, this language of seeking after Jesus um, is language that Jesus used himself. Right? Think about the Sermon on the Mount. Ask, seek, knock. For everyone who asks will receive. He who seeks finds. Whoever knocks, the door will be open. Right? Three ways that we can live out seeking and setting. First is through worship. Worship? How's that work? What we did here together this morning with those who were singing and playing and, and accompanying and giving us excellent harmony and rhythm and, and we were singing out, we were actually obeying what comes later in this passage in 3, 16, and 17. We were singing to one another, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. God has given us worship as a way to change our mind and to lift our mind from the circumstances of earth to the glories of Christ in heaven. Now, as a musician, sometimes it's really hard to do that. Oftentimes when I'm playing guitar, I've got a little thing beeping in my ear trying to keep rhythm and I'm trying to play around other musicians and I'm thinking, am I playing flat? Am I tuned up? Or is this person singing right? Is this tempo on? And it's easy to get distracted and think about things on earth when we're worshiping. When you're in a congregation and you're singing, it's easy to get distracted and think about, think about things on earth. We're, we're tired. I don't like this hymn. I don't know about this. But listen, y'all, don't overlook the value and the beauty of what happens on this platform through song. Worship sets our minds on things that are above. I pray that in your corporate worship, through the taking of the Lord's Supper, through seeing others baptized and thus remembering your own baptism and remembering what is true in verse 220, that you've been buried with Christ, and then in 3.1, you've been raised with Christ. Every time you see a baptism, remember Colossians. Remember Romans 6. Uh, remember Galatians 2.20, that you have been crucified with Christ and raised with Him. Whenever you take the Lord's Supper, remember Jesus' body broken, His blood poured out in the, in the new covenant. Second, the second way we can obey this is through prayer. Now, I know that prayer for many of us is challenging and can quickly devolve into a list, sort of like we're writing to Santa Claus when we're seven years old. But friends, prayer is the closest thing on earth 
to the communion we will experience with God in heaven. You know, in Eden, Adam didn't have to pray because he walked with God. But we don't live in Eden, do we? And between the fall and glory, prayer is the nearest thing to what we will experience in heaven. We lift our hearts to God. We ask Him to come down and fill us with new power through His Spirit. We ask Him to work in us what He declares to be true. We confess our weaknesses. We confess verses 5 to 11, even as we seek verses 12 to 17. We confess our weakness. We thank God for being united to Christ. We plead for these truths to be true of us, to be true of our spouse, to be true of our children, our grandchildren, those that we love, and even strangers that we pass on the street. Prayer is how we seek and set our minds on things that are above. It reframes our orientation from merely the day-to-day struggles, and it brings us into conversation with the God who has raised us with Jesus Christ. Third, the third way that we seek and set is through the practice of meditating on Scripture. Now, I know the danger of using the word meditation. It automatically brings to mind folks in orange, people sitting in lotus positions, Yoda, a variety of things that it may bring to your mind. You're reflecting on Luke levitating stones and, you know, apps that mindfulness and peace. Listen, scriptural meditation is filling our minds with the Word of God or the work of God. That's it. It's filling our minds with the Word of God or the work of God. You think of Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who walks not in the way of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law does he meditate day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. But the wicked are not so. They're like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the assembly nor in the gates of righteousness, but the Lord knows the way of the righteous, and has established it. That image of Psalm 1 is so beautiful to understand meditation, right? A tree planted by streams of water, how does it grow? biologically, we could understand, well, there's this soil content and the moisture content and sunlight, and there's these processes happening. But think about it from this perspective. Most of what causes a tree to grow is hidden from your day-to-day sight, and it happens really slowly, right? What's the point of a tree being planted by streams of water? It is nourished continually in hidden ways, and its growth is slow, but it's perceptible over time. That's a great picture for what meditation does in the Christian life. As we come to fill our minds with the Word of God and the works of God and to think about them deeply and to recall them and think about them over and over again, we're being nourished inwardly in ways that are hardly perceptible. We don't like to be patient. We like to see instant results. Meditation is part of that slow growing 
that over time transforms a seed into a mighty oak that yields its fruit in its season? That is, it does what it does when it's supposed to. Its leaf doesn't wither. It can withstand the droughts, the tests that come upon it. Set our minds on things that are above is a call to meditation. I would challenge you at some point before the sun sets, read Colossians 3.1 and simply ask, Lord, would you let the truth that I have been raised with Christ and that he is king and that he's in control, would you let me see the beauty of that? And cultivating a habit of doing that, whether it's daily, hourly, <laughs> regularly, sets and seeks the things that are above. Friends, holiness is not something that is an add-on to the gospel. It is the fruit of the gospel. We are called holy and beloved in the gospel because we're united to the Holy One and the beloved Son, Jesus Christ. What is true of Him comes to be true of us. But we've got to walk in it. God has not chosen to give us our holiness fully formed, but rather like newborn babes, we pursue Christ over the long course of our life saying no to sin, putting sin to death daily, putting on these virtues daily, learning to hit the, 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 the home run of the Christian life is not easy. And we will miss from time to time. But in the power of Christ, by seeking and setting, we can live the life that Christ has purchased for us in the gospel. Will you pray with me this morning?